Hello and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. Uh, I'm uh, delighted you're here listening. And before we get started, just a very brief reminder, if you haven't already done so, head on over to www.energyflux.news where you can sign up for free email updates from the Energy Flux newsletter. Now, uh, the energy world is in turmoil. There is uh, a lot of unprecedented and uh, tumultuous change going on right now um, in the midst of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, it, we're, we're witnessing pretty much in real time a uh, kind of redrawing of the political spectrum and uh, the, the sort of the, the paradigms around uh, energy use in Europe and uh, policy is likely to change on the back of that. So I am very happy to be joined tonight by Stephen Geiger, who is the founder and president of Innova Partners, an energy transition and carbon management investment advisory firm based in Washington, D.C. Uh, Stephen's an outspoken commentator on European energy issues and so I thought, who better to invite onto the show to discuss some of the monumental changes we're witnessing at an EU policy level in response to Russia's shocking invasion of Ukraine. So, uh, Stephen, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks a lot, Seb. Happy to be here. Uh, Stephen, let's start with a quick introduction, if you will. Tell us a bit about yourself uh, and Innova Partners, what they do and, and how you came to, to be doing what you do. Okay, um... Sure. I basically have spent the last 30 years uh, in energy. First uh, half of that has been uh, in oil and gas, uh, primarily uh, in former Soviet Union, Russia, and emerging markets. And then the second half of my career uh, has been primarily focused in renewables and particularly in uh, energy transition uh, from traditional energy sectors to uh, the new renewable energy, low carbon uh, future energy structures. So com combination of uh, traditional energy combined with uh, renewables and particularly in the uh, energy transition space. Um, so Innova Partners has two functions. The first thing we do is uh, we're a uh, bespoke uh, advisory group that designs and builds energy transition investment programs and strategies for large energy groups, governments, uh, investment funds. And then the second part of our group, uh, when we do come across some pretty promising companies and technologies that we think are going to play a key role in energy transition, uh, we invest in them, take equity stakes, and, and build commercial opportunities uh, for their technologies uh, and systems within our, our broader networks. So two parts of the business. Great. Okay. And how much of your business is in Europe at the moment? Uh, the bulk is in Europe, actually, um, because that's where we see the low-hanging fruit of the energy transition. We have uh, a few projects out in some of the regulated carbon markets in California and, and developing in the Middle East as well. Uh, but the Euro European Union uh, has used to be the trifecta. Now it's <laughs> uh, the quad regions. You have very high carbon price. You have a very high natural gas price. You have um, binding uh, legislation uh, that you didn't have two years ago. And then now you have a uh, energy uh, and security and foreign policy risk. So all four of those um, factors um, are really going to drive energy transition in Europe uh, faster than other parts we'll see uh, around the globe for our business. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that's what we're here to discuss tonight, um, particularly the, the, the fourth of those factors with the, the security issues that are coming to the fore now. Um, we've seen some quite astonishing U-turns uh, just in German policy or perhaps German political positioning around energy um, and also foreign policy over the last 72 hours or so. Um, the, the German government halted the certification of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia. They agreed to send arms to Ukraine. And they've also openly started discussing the possibility of extending um, nuclear reactors that were scheduled to be decommissioned this year. Um, let's let's go through those, or certainly the um, the, the energy aspects of those um, on on Nord Stream two, um, which I know you've commented on a lot in the past. Uh, what do you think took the German government so long to uh, to, to take this decision? It was clearly a, a kind of problematic project, but Merkel, of course, insisted it was a, a purely commercial venture, which she's not really saying right now in the circumstances. Um, you know, was there any real hope of uh, a kind of uh, uh, of this kind of wishful thinking coming good? Do you think? Obviously, there it's a pretty complex web of commercial and political interest. Uh, the fact that the German economy uh, needs uh, imported gas uh, and some historical factors, as well as some political influential actors, uh, bringing together that whole structure. I, I think it was a lot of wishful thinking in the hopes that. Um, everything would just work out okay and, and the gas would work and the situation with uh, supplies for Ukraine would somehow uh, magically uh, uh, not be affected. And it took, uh, it took uh, the recent events in Ukraine to finally uh, have people in Germany realize that that wishful thinking is not going to pan out. And they took a decision to um, at least cancel it for the time being. Uh, that doesn't mean that it will be canceled for all time. Uh, I think clearly see a situation where it might be revived in the future should uh, the situation change. But for the time being, um, there is a decision now to put put it formally on hold. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I do wonder, you know, um, th th there's there's a variety of opinions out there about whether it's this is it, you know, it, it's dead for good. Um, but I think they were quite particular to choose um, a decision to, to to halt temporarily or you know sort of indefinitely the certification procedure that, that will give them leverage in the future if once things on the security front have have calmed down and, and people are kind of back at the negotiating table to kind of you know, dangle the possibility of restarting that process i'd imagine yeah it depends on which you know which point of view you take uh, the the german point of view the european point of view the russian point of view the american point of view um, there, there, there are a lot of advantages to uh, those new pipelines. They're 2,000 kilometers shorter. Um, the CO2 emissions uh, of pumping gas that uh, shorter route are five times less emissions than sending it through the 30, 40-year-old leaky uh, systems that were built through the Ukraine and Belarus. Uh, so on environmental ground, on a cost basis, on a security uh, basis, um, they're all pluses, but unfortunately it was linked uh, it was linked very clearly to uh, maintaining stability in the, um, you know, in the uh, Ukrainian economy. Even though I think they were pulling in maybe two, two and a half billion in transit fees, which uh, you know, the big for, to Ukraine, uh, obviously that's a big amount of money. But to the European total uh, gas import bill, it's uh, it's not. So um, I think it really depends on which perspective you want to take and. 
now I think we're going to see uh, American uh, LNG and other LNG uh, come and replace uh, a lot of Russian gas, or at least try to replace a lot of gas, and, and that also will then be spun by some sides as um, that this deal was killed for commercial reasons by American uh, <laughs> gas producers. So it's sort of uh, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, unfortunately, with the, with the pipeline. Uh, yeah, there was never going to be an easy solution, whether it went ahead or not. And um, in a sense, it still hasn't been resolved because you can imagine a situation. It might, I mean, it might be hard to imagine now in the midst of all the chaos, but, you know, Russia with its enormous resource base, it seems unlikely to remain, considering its location on the doorstep of a massive resource dependent continent, that there's the kind of there's this kind of fundamental logic that um that, that those that those energy sources will make their way into Europe and there's this brand new pipeline even packed with gas that is just kind of waiting to be connected up and uh, and, and given the all clear yeah i mean for me it's a little bit of a deja vu uh, just as a side note i wrote my uh, thesis at mit way back when on the reagan administration's attempt to sanction the original yamal russian <laughs> europe pipeline back in the 80s, so this is sort of a bit of replay. Um, uh, but uh, I, again, I don't think uh, the dust has settled on whether that pipeline will finally be utilized or not. But I think the bigger issue you mentioned is, uh, it's a question, um, have the recent statements out of the EU and in Germany in particular, do they reflect a real, shall we call wake up call? And, and a, do they really uh, mean a significant transition away from either Russian gas or imported gas towards a broader renewable-based, low-carbon, uh, diversified uh, energy uh, um, source? Or is it simply a reflection of the heat of the moment and when things settle down, um, the policies will maybe not go back entirely to business as usual, but maybe uh, a little bit of the sort of the Dr uh, dramatic moves that we've seen announced in the last two or three days, they may be peddled back a bit. That's the question to me. I'm not sure what the answer is. Yeah, and I guess a lot will depend on the outcome of um, security events on the ground in, in, in Ukraine as well. If there is a, a peaceful resolution, then you can imagine some backpedaling happening in the background. Um, but let's talk a little bit about um, the, uh, the other aspects of what's going on in Germany. So we've seen open discussion among uh, the, the, uh, the government and, and ministers about the potential for extending the nuclear phase-out, which has been quite contentious in Germany. Um, do, do you think there's really any legs to that? Could Germany keep its final reactors running beyond this year? They might, but I think they'll do it and said they'll do it at a very last resort. Um, they're more likely to keep the coal plants running uh, beyond 2030. Uh, keep in mind, Germany's had a very long history of uh, anti-nuclear anti uh, movement going back uh, 1998, I believe, 99 is when they first took the decision to close all the reactors by 2022. Uh, and then it was only 2011, uh, Fukushima, that sped that up a little bit. But um, I think it's going to take a lot to get them to come off that decision. They may do it in the end if uh, the situation of energy becomes so acute. Uh, but I think the coal plants are the first, uh, the first ones that would be extended. And we should always keep in mind the magnitude of the problem. When you're talking about replacing um, uh, Russian gas, uh, it's, 
uh, it's a substantial lift. Um, and EU, I think, imports uh, last year about 150 BCM billion cubic meters. Call it roughly 38% uh, of its supply. To give you a sort of rule of thumb, a typical size nuclear reactor might save you one and a half, two, and a, uh, two uh, BCM a year. So if they kept those three reactors online, that would only really come up to about, you know, five, six uh, BCM a year replacement of gas, which is um, a fairly small amount. So that's another reason they may not do it, um, but it's, 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 it's definitely a, a possibility. Yeah, I, I've heard a figure banded about that even if Germany had not exited nuclear at all and had all of its reactors running according to their original um, operational lifespan, then it wouldn't have impacted Germany's current gas demand profile by more than 4%, which seems yeah. quite trivial. Yeah, and, and now let's keep in mind, this is, um, you know, it's almost like you're running and running, you have to run fast just to stand still, uh, because uh, you have to keep in mind that the European gas production is declining um, um, probably 5, 8 uh, BCM a year, and for example, take the Groningen field in, in, in Netherlands. Uh, it's currently, I think, around seven and a half, eight BCM a year production. That's going to be closed down at the end of this year. Uh, they also have said that they would do that as a very last resort to keep that running. Um, and then you have uh, coal that, until you know, the last week, has been planned to be phased out uh, and replaced with more gas. In fact, I think it, somebody told me it was some crazy amount of, um, I don't know, uh, 20 gigawatts, I think, of new gas capacity, if I'm correct. So you throw that in. Um, uh, I guess the takeaway from this is if you have declining European production and you have um, uh, phasing out the coal and phasing out the nukes, um, you really are putting yourself in a very difficult position trying to, at the same time, replace Russian gas when it's such you know, a, a large uh, footprint, 38 40% of your total input of gas. Yeah, I mean, something's got to give, right? You can't deny access to all of these kind of secure, stable energy sources um, overnight and or, you know, in, in a very concertinaed fashion of like maybe a decade um, and then expect somehow the lights to stay on. So, yeah, something's got to give here. Well, I think I think in, in, in the immediate term, they obviously there's not going to be any silver bullet here. And I think um, as long as they keep their eye on the ball, that this is not just so much, uh, you know, sort of a, a Russian gas issue. This is really a uh, the flag on the pipeline or the flag on the tanker. Uh, is not as important as the overall dependency issue on, on gas for Germany particularly. Uh, and they need to focus on that to make sure that they design policies that allow them to get off the gas um, uh, in general. So, you know, in the mean, in, a, in the immediate thing, they obviously need just to secure, take some steps, uh, collective uh, uh, set of policies, coordinated set of policies to keep the lights on and keep the heat going. So obviously that's going to involve a lot more ramp up of LNG imports. Um, until recently, they were only sort of importing about half of their uh, existing terminals capacity. Now it's uh, up to 100% capacity. More than half of that's coming from the U.S. Um, in, in theory, the existing LNG terminals could probably replace you know, 60, 65% of the Russian pipeline gas. So 
I mean, that will get them a, far, a fair way, but the bigger issue there is, okay, great, you have a terminal, but <laughs> where are you going to source the actual LNG? It's an incredibly short supply and it's very expensive. Um, and, and building out new LNG production, uh, you know, you're talking you know, five-year process. Uh, so, it, you know, you can talk about importing, and particularly from the U.S. or Katka, where they line it up, but, you know, at what price? So it's not just an issue of uh, security of supply, it's affordability of supply. So they can increase the, uh, and pay through the nose through uh, more LNG, then obviously fill the storage up, it's enough storage. Um, fast track, I think Germany's fast tracking two new LNG terminals, um, um, possibly boost local production uh, by not shutting down uh, the Groninger field and possibly trying to restart some other, but there's a time lag in that, multi-year time lag. We've already discussed rethinking the nuke and uh, coal phase out, um, so that's on the table as well. And then there's the other card, just rethink the climate policy, uh, possibly um, you know, push the carbon targets out uh, a bit. And again, that would be a major policy backtrack. And Germany just, I think, yesterday announced they're actually going to accelerate uh, the, uh, you know, try to get to 100% renewable grid by 2035. So that may be the very last thing on the table, but it's going to require a coordinated set of policies to get them through the immediate uh, hump. Um, but hopefully they'll really start targeting the, um, the real solution can only be uh, a, a dramatic ramp up of uh, local energy production that simultaneously meets their uh, climate targets, and that is uh, renewable energy and storage. Yeah, so that 100% by 2035 target, I saw there was a leaked document on the newswires. Um, the report suggested it would require 100 gigawatts of onshore wind. 30 gigawatts of offshore wind, 200 gigawatts of solar PV capacity. Um, I did a, a quick check, and I, I believe that Germany currently has 62 gigawatts of onshore wind, 7.7 .7 gigawatts of offshore wind, and about 59 gigawatts of solar. So solar is going to nearly quadruple. Um, offshore wind would be uh, about the same, and you'd almost double the onshore wind capacity in the next sort of what we're looking at 13 years that's a pretty steep ramp up is it is it is it doable um i don't know if it's doable but i'll agree it's a pretty steep ramp up um but i think this is only in the energy sector um and then we start talking about how you're going to decarbonize the other uh, aspects uh, of the economy to hit the climate targets and and that leads into an area that we specialize in which is uh, decarbonization of, of heat uh, which is 50 i think 51% of final energy use in the eu and about 47% of the CO2 emissions, but nobody's really taking a look at it. Everyone's talking about electricity and, and transport, uh, EVs and batteries. So, um, and that also directly addresses the imported gas issue because um, you know, a lot of that gas, in fact, more of the gas is be, being used for industry and for heating of buildings than is being used for power generation. Uh, so, if you really want to address the imported gas dependency issue, uh, the plate, one of the key places to be focusing on is reducing the demand in industry and in building heating, the built environment. And unfortunately, okay. there's really not a lot of activity in either of those sectors. Uh, 
tell us more about that. Why why is there not much activity in this space that where there needs to be right now? Well, I think um, it, you know, put it nicely, um, uh, project developers and and investors simply chase, they chase the easiest, uh, fastest, quickest, lowest hanging fruit, which happened to be naked PV, naked wind, and now uh, trying to patch it up a little bit with batteries focusing on uh, uh, power generation and electric vehicles. It was more sexy. It was uh, seemed to be more exciting. And it was plug and play. Um, you know, develop a PV, uh, uh, PV plant in six or nine months and you know, put up the panels and string it together and connect it to the grid and, and you're done with it with very low risk. Uh, now the margins are a single digit and reflect that <laughs> risk factor, but that's really what investors uh, and developers have been chasing. You know, decarbonizing heat in industry, now you're talking more a tailored solution. Uh, it's not standardized. Every factory has its own heat requirements and has its own physical layout, temperatures and pressures. You're talking about boiler codes of every country, which uh, are more complex uh, than electrical codes. These are things that blow up and can kill people and, and have to be integrated. So. You're talking about different uh, inspection, more stringent inspections and um, permitting requirements. They're slower developed, slower cycles. There's uh, less uh, EPC teams out there that can do it. And there's simply very little understanding among the investor community, financing community, of um, how to really pro you know, price the, the risk on some of these things or even to understand what these technologies are. Uh, so that's really um, held back um, held back the decarbonization of heating, both on the industry level and then also in the, um, in the building level. And the building level now, you're getting, people are talking uh, actively about uh, heat pumps, and that's, uh, you know, that's definitely a, a going to be a key area of decarbonization. Um, but that involves a lot of investment, it involves a lot of disruption, uh, digging up uh, you know, streets and laying and cables and, and and then it gets back to well how are you going to get the green electrons to, to power all that you know, it's nice to talk uh, you know cop of three but you know, if you need a couple more hundred gigawatts of wind farms and pv panels uh, and no place to put them uh, suddenly uh, you know when people get their mind around the scale of energy we're talking about decarbonizing heating um, suddenly uh, those numbers balloon uh, pretty quickly that's you know those are some of the key reasons why to date uh, you really haven't seen much progress on this, even though it's sort of the elephant in the room. Heating is is really the carbon elephant in the room, the energy elephant in the room that that people have really avoided because it seemed uh, just difficult. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and um, of course, the, and that plays back to the the kind of the nuclear question because that's obviously a pure electricity play. And there's so much gas demand going into heat that it just doesn't displace it unless you also have a concurrent electrification program to electrify heating in, in buildings. You mentioned heat pumps. What are the other technologies that you're hoping would be able to attract more investment to decarbonize heat and industrial processes? Well, uh you know, some, some, some of the technologies that we think, uh, again, it's going to be a portfolio of solution. It's going to be horses for courses. I think on the residential level, um, where you have remote homes, uh, you're going to be looking largely at, uh, at heat pumps to replace uh, the heating. Uh, but when you're talking, particularly in Europe and the larger cities that already have existing district heating networks, um, you're, you're really, uh, there's a, 
handful of technologies that offer the ability to have drop-in solutions that can provide zero-carbon heat into exi and utilize existing uh, heating networks of these European cities. Uh, and you know, the growth rate of these is, is, is substantial, uh, eight, 10% uh, per year growing. And as more and more people live in the cities, uh, they have to decarbonize. And, and so district heating decarbonization of European cities is a big area to cut down on. Currently, a lot of this is provided by either a straight uh, burning of fuels to create the heat or combined heat and power off some of the, uh, for example, uh, lignite plants in Germany. Uh, so there you're, you're kind of stuck. What do you do? Okay, we're gonna shut down the coal plants and uh, we're gonna replace the electrons with wind and solar. Uh, but how, we, how do we replace the heat? Um, electrification of heating, um, yes, with a heat pump, you can get it to an economic level in principle, but there's some other technologies. Uh, solar thermal is one of them. Uh, some um, biomass-related uh, heating applications where you're getting sort of net neutral or even net negative heating uh, sources. And they have the added advantage of being drop-in solutions where heat pumps aren't exactly a drop-in solution. Uh, a lot of them require a lot of um, you know, digging up uh, into the ground and, and, and that's disruptive uh, as well as time-consuming. So we like to focus on, on the um, technologies that can be drop-in solutions for low carbon, zero carbon into uh, city heating. That's one piece that's a very big wedge of decarbonizing the heating. And then uh, the same technologies can be applied on the industrial to basically what's called industrial process heat. So uh, talking reasonably anything from say 100 degrees C up to say six or 700 degrees C, which is, you know, a large swath, uh, probably 60% of industrial heating falls within that in Europe. And it's currently being fired primarily uh, by um, uh, uh, natural gas, uh, imported natural gas. So, so if you start attacking those two sectors, the, the heating sector of cities and the uh, decarbonization of process heat in industry, you can make some pretty large-scale reductions in the amount of gas that you need and uh, conversely in the amount of gas that you need to import. And I think it's important to realize that um, it, you don't have to try to replace half the gas overnight. Uh, it's, you know, in, in these type of commodities, kind of the marginal unit that sets the price. So if you can make a dent in it through uh, a, you know, a group of policies, if you can make a sizable dent, um, and the, most importantly, uh, what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to remove the ability to use uh, imported fuel or fuel dependency as, as a lever over your foreign policy and your security decision making. And that can be done, I think, by replacing you know, a moderate amount. You don't even have to replace probably even half of it to uh, re reduce the, uh, significantly reduce the ability of that being used as as a lever over your decision making. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there. And you mentioned a topic that I'm very interested in, which is marginal pricing. And I'll come back to that. But we, we have a caller on the line. Uh, Don, I'm going to bring you in. If you unmute yourself, go ahead, Don, you're on the line. Yeah, thanks. Uh, this is very interesting. I was wondering if the, um, and Steve, I don't think this would be something that you guys specifically would play a part in, but you know, looking at uh, the the 
prior levels of nuclearization in, in Europe under a, a uranium-based program, what the uh, pathway to some of the new thorium and liquid salt related re reactors would be that it's a 10 year lag and this is not a how do we solve the immediate problem but you know if we're looking long term there just isn't enough wind and solar to replace everything that we need so I was wondering if you had thoughts on that um, I'm not particularly an expert in, in, in uh, thorium reactors uh, and the like uh, I do uh, know that any technology that really is still in the experimental uh, level today in that sector, by the time you're talking about making a meaningful impact uh, at scale, you're talking 20, 30 years from now, I just don't see uh, that industry scaling up fast enough to make a meaningful climate impact. Um, so there may be many promising technologies out there. It's just I think uh, people are um, over um, over underestimating the uh, the delay time in in deployment at a, a, at a scale that can be, make a meaningful impact uh, in the time frame that we really make uh, that we really have to make uh, a change hmm. um, I guess I mean, if we're looking at climate climate based reactions it you know we're on sort of a, a global scale and I know it's it's uh, the 50 by 50 or, and I know some of the countries are, are looking at hundred percent replacement. Um, was it the 2055 plan? I, I can't remember exactly what time frame they were looking at, but, um, you know, we, we've been talking about kind of wind and solar and, um, I think there's a lot of geothermal storage that has been talked about in the, in the Northern countries, you know, Iceland and, uh, Norway and whatnot. Um, it would be interesting to know, you know, on a because you were talking about heating as a specific uh, energy need, um, and maybe I missed it early on because I came in maybe ten minutes or so ago. Um, other than those, is there a promising new technology that that you're aware of that uh, that looks like it's out there uh, for, that for can me. be that can be scale like really truly scalable? Because again, wind and uh, what, what for, for what? For the produ production of electricity or the production of heat? Uh, for the production of heat, I thought that was uh, it, you know decarbonized production of heat. I'm, I'm interested yeah. in that that concept. Uh, again, I, I we're we're strong believers that there's enough capacity out there in in solar and in geothermal and in biomass uh, to satisfy the primary needs of heating and decarbonization for Europe. It just simply, uh, they haven't been explored and they haven't been applied. Um, and part of that might be uh, hydrogen, uh, although we have mixed feelings on hydrogen. Uh, I think there's way too much hype in it. Uh, and, it and the applications that we hear talked about, unfortunately, aren't the key applications. The key application should be first and foremost decarbonizing the critical hydrogen that we use today for fertilizer production, it's something we need to eat. Uh, and secondly, for high temp uh, industrial decarbonization where it makes sense. And only after we, and that's I think roughly about 100, 120 million tons a year of hydrogen, only after we successfully decarbonize those sectors should people be talking about any other application like transport or planes or, or shipping, uh, because those really aren't, uh, those are further out and higher risk. Uh, but unfortunately that makes the bulk of the uh, talk these days uh, in what's called the hopium environment, is uh, far-fetched and broad applications of hydrogen 
I think it'd be much more useful if we focused on a much more narrow but uh, critical sector such as fertilizer and, and, and high temp, high temp uh, uh, industry. But getting back to your point about promising technologies, um, I mean, we, we, we see them, we're focused again in the, uh, in the solar area, we're focused in the, in the biomass area um, and some uh, geo, uh, geo area. Uh, I think particularly they're interesting for us simply because in heating, uh, you have a lot more flexibility than you do with, with an electron. And, and that's something that people are starting to get their mind around that you can store heat extremely cheaply and you can store it long term. You can store it for seasonal. Uh, six months you can store it. Uh, so that starts opening up the idea of seasonal shifting of heating in, in EU where basically when you're getting maximum resources during the summertime, you stuff that heat into very, very low cost uh, geological formations uh, or pits of water, pits of rock, whatever. There's a number of different storage solutions out there, but they're all extremely cheap. And they would hold the bulk of that heat uh, until the winter when you could draw back out for your winter heat heating needs. When you start thinking about what you can do on that scale and the gas displacement um, and more stable annual demand for, for gas, um, now you're starting to talk about not just um, sort of, sort of uh, gigawatt solutions or gigawatt hours, you're talking not even terawatt, you're talking about petawatt hour uh, demand and solutions. So these things are starting to get some attention. Um, Unfortunately, not as much as, as, as PV, wind, batteries, and, and EVs, and hydrogen, uh, but, but hopefully maybe something that does come out of the recent changes uh, and the awakening up to the gas dependency issue is people saying, well, well, wait a second, most of that gas we're using for heating anyway, maybe, maybe we should start looking at uh, how we're gonna decarbonize heating in Europe uh, because we'll kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And and um, sorry, go go on, Don. Do you want to do you want to follow up on that? No, I was just going to say I was going to uh, say I appreciate that. Uh, you know, we had talked to a company in Norway that had developed a, you know, a, a, a geologic heat storage technology that we thought was interesting. Um, and it sounds like you're you're working in the same vein. So that's uh, it's good to hear. Yeah, there's people who are chasing uh, in uh, geothermal, um, and whether that's uh, augmented geothermal where you're going down very deep, five kilometers, 10 kilometers, and trying to hit uh, reservoirs that are already 300, 500, 300, 400 C and bringing that up and, and generating heat and power. But uh, there's still early days uh, in that. And I think the costs are gonna turn out to be a lot different and delays are gonna be a lot different than people think. And in Europe, uh, the track record of drilling and creating earthquakes and being shut down is pretty established. <laughs> So, I mean, I definitely, uh, we're keeping an eye on geothermal as the heat production source, uh, and we think there will be some uh, advances there. But what I was talking about is using geological formations as right, a for storage. very cheap storage medium for yep. heat that's, that's generated a, on the surface and just stuff down there until you need it. Yeah, that's exactly what that, it, it, it wasn't geothermal, it was, ge it was geologic storage. Yeah. But yeah. look, it's a portfolio of solutions we're going to need. That doesn't mean all of the above because all of the above means all of the stupid as well. <laughs> so we have to be a, a little intelligent in how we allocate our scarce uh, investment uh, resources to high probability, fast, scalable solutions. Um, and that's, um, I think they're out there. I, I think um, 
they simply need to be explored and to be pushed a little a little faster than people are doing today. Yeah. yeah. Just on that geological question, I just had, I was just wondering, like, that, are these existing geological structures, or do they, do they involve drilling or like salt cavern creation? Because that's very expensive. There's, there's, there's different approaches. Different companies are taking different approaches. If you're talking about geological heat storage, uh, most of the companies are typically looking at converting oil and gas wells that are decommissioned and expensive to plug and and and, and abandon. So it's one way for oil companies to sort of avoid that P&A expense by just saying, hey, we're using it for heat storage and, and they can avoid that expense. But also it's, um, it's already drilled. They know the reservoir uh, characteristics extremely well. Uh, if it happened to be, for example, in, in California and in the Middle East, you have thermal uh, oil uh, enhanced oil production where they are already steaming these reservoirs. So the rock is already hot. Um, so those can be converted with reasonable uh, ease to uh, store heat and produce power uh, on a 24-7 basis uh, or produce uh, heat uh, on a 24-7 basis. Uh, so uh, most of the companies are looking at finding a way to use existing uh, geological infrastructure coming from the oil and gas industry. Okay, and the heat would be produced what from solar thermal? It will be a uh, again. It comes down to what's the cheapest for that location. Uh, if you're talking a location uh, like Spain, uh, then obviously you're going to be talking uh, heavily in the solar area. Uh, but it's going to be a combination of solar thermal and absorbing uh, uh, curtailed energy from any source uh, when when it's available. And given the multi-month ability to store this, uh, you can look at a multiple heat source for a reservoir. Uh, when when you got a really good sunshine period, you're using low-cost solar thermal, uh, putting heat in there, and then you know maybe four hours one night, you're picking up some uh, some uh, uh, excess wind power, and you're using resistive heating to heat part of it up. So there's a number of uh, solutions that will work in concert with each other. Uh, bottom line is what has a very low cost structure on both the generation of the heat, the storage, and the round-trip efficiency, and then combined with operating costs. Um, that's really, you know, you work that into some kind of matrix and you figure out whether it's going to be a viable solution or not. And, you know, these are all fairly you know, proven technologies that have been out uh, in commercial exploitation for decades. Uh, so the combination of putting them together, uh, there's some integration risk of uh, stringing them together uh, in this unique fashion. But each of these technologies have independently been commercially you know, out in the field for, for decades. So I think it's fairly low integration risk. Okay. And, and what kind of policy support would you need to really kickstart these sorts of investments? Well, the policy support um, right now with the current um, gas prices uh, alone, um, these are entirely commercially viable. When you layer in the carbon tax, the EU carbon uh, carbon price, uh, uh, then they're extremely commercially viable. But it still would be very useful for governments. Um, we'd like to see Germany be the first because uh, it's uh, where one of our key companies are focused on is to have them take a, a major policy shift to decarbonize heat in, uh, of industry and cities uh, by using their own uh, local resources. Uh, 
uh, or certainly EU resources and with a very specific plan to decarbonize heat in industry and in, in, in large city district heating networks, um, primarily. As I said, the residential sector could be handled by heat pumps and other solutions. So policy support of uh, saying, okay, here's our target. We're gonna, uh, we're gonna provide some additional, you know, fast tracking of, of, of policies because keep in mind, it's one thing to say, okay, you have a technology and you can drop it into my district heating network. And then when you get in there and start talking to the city managers and utility managers, you find out there's, um, you know, there's a whole host of regulations uh, of uh, who can supply heat and who can't supply heat and things like that to slow you down. So fast tracking that, basically deregulating. Uh, it's, on, it's, on the, it's on the legislative block right now, deregulating these uh, networks, heat networks, like they deregulated the electricity networks uh, in the past to allow separate generation from transmission, allow any generator to, to drop their heat into these networks to deliver to an end user. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, um, uh, but I, I suppose the, the, the economic side of things, you, you talk about like expensive gas and expensive carbon, making these, putting these things in the money. Um, but there's always a risk that, you know, that the tide can go out. Um, so w could you envisage perhaps some sort of guarantee, like a kind of cap and floor mechanism where, you know, if it goes be below a certain price, the government gives you a kind of top up to make sure that you're, you're kind of made good on your investment? Well, some technologies we've seen, they really can stand alone uh, on a commercial basis in, the, I would say, two, three uh, euros a kilowatt hour uh, level um, at a reasonable size. And, and that's already fully competitive with gas prices without carbon tax uh, before the last year's run up of gas price. So there are already some out there that already stand alone on a purely commercial basis. And, and the, you know, the, carbon, uh, the carbon income simply... Uh, makes it more viable. I guess what I was getting at more was, uh, was not so much a, a block of free money from the government, there's simply uh, some policy uh, support uh, setting targets that here is, is how many um, terawatt hours uh, of heating we want to decarbonize year by year, and, and we want people to come with plans uh, how we can, we can match that. And that's kind of what's missing is, is the overall plan to set a target and, and then set the policies that allow that target to be achieved by whatever portfolio uh, of technologies are commercially able to you know, hit the ground shovel ready now. So it's, it's kind of a, you know, a more of a policy uh, drive that we'd like to see. And hopefully that's what we'll see coming out of uh, sort of the recent, um, shall we call it a reawakening of, of energy dependency. Yeah, that was going to be my, my last question for you is to kind of tie it back to the, the, the original theme of this this episode is, is you know, how optimistic are you that, that this will be the direction that things move in in the wake of everything that's going on? Uh, I, you know, the optimist in all of us would like to say it's going to it's going to be substantial. It's going to uh, mean something and, and it's going to be a real change. But I think we all know and we've all seen if you've lived through a couple of these crises, uh, you know, the. The immediate crisis is solved, uh, and then politicians go back to having to deal with uh, a lot of angry uh, voters who are facing unaffordable heating electricity bills. <laughs> so, um, you know, these ideas to do these sort of Marshall plans or, or Man Manhattan projects to decarbonize and wean themselves off imported gas, uh, the reason they've been importing all that gas for so long is because it's been the cheapest form of energy. 
uh, or among the cheapest. And, you know, assuming the immediate crisis uh, that we're seeing uh, is solved in, 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 the, in the near medium term, um, will politicians then be able to continue uh, with energy transition on a significant scale? Or will they succumb to uh, sort of public uh, not being able to, in dealing with all the other inflationary uh, issues that the public's dealing with, uh, having to deal with the cost of an energy transition? Because there is a cost to energy transition. And I guess the, uh, the realist in me says there will probably be a, a backpedaling at some point of some of the aggressive policies we're, we're hearing spoken over the last couple of days. Okay, but the, the technology you described earlier, they, they would be a net saving if they're already competitive without a carbon price with gas, at like maybe a fraction of what it is today. So, but then you also say that, that there's a cost of decarbonization. So you, like some of the stuff, is, there, there's kind of different places on the, the marginal cost abatement curve, I suppose. Yeah, it's, 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 yes, technologies exist, but keep in mind because these industries have yet to scale, there's not... You know, you don't have uh, you don't have the the level of you know hundreds of developer teams out there who can do these things tomorrow. Those there's the same thing with heat pumps. You don't have you know you know a huge group of people that know how to install heat pumps uh, and service them. So that's kind of a boost that's needed on policy uh, to get those groups uh, built, and then on the financing side to get the investment uh, community in these uh, and to move at the speed necessary for decarbonization. That's another uh, angle that uh, is required, uh, and and policy can stimulate that by providing uh, some type of structures that uh, public-private partnerships that put in some government money and then has to be matched by private sector money, but adds up to a much larger sum, and it's specifically targeted to take the risk um, of these technologies uh, so they can you know scale faster. Because if you leave it to the private sector. Uh, they're going to they're going to scale slowly, uh, so it has to. This policy has to be driven uh, by the governments and done in a pri- uh, public-private partnership, as well as other supporting policies to allow these industries uh, to scale uh, at the, at the speed they need to. If if that's there, um, then I can see you know I can see how these industries and decarbonizing the heat in particular. Uh, could scale a lot faster, but if they're left just to uh, their own devices and limited abilities and and limited um, attention within private investor community, um, you just simply won't see them scale as fast as they really could and and and, and should. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how the the the, the kind of commotion, if you like, that's that's kind of rippling across European capitals how that translates into policy action or a kind of reversion to the kind of inertia that's, that's kept us where we are today. Um, that's, that's fascinating. Stephen, thank you for your time. Uh, I really appreciate you, you uh, taking the calls and everything. Um, just a final reminder, if, uh, if, you, if you dialed in late, then um, head on over to www.energyflux.news, sign up for free email updates. And uh, there'll be another podcast around about this time next week. So, Steve, thanks for your time. I appreciate it, Seb. And, uh, yeah, we'll keep in touch. All the best. Thanks, everybody. Okay.